And turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy 4. Back into 2 Timothy after a little interlude last week. The spirit of this age. Today we're going to explore the nature of the believer's interaction, not only with the physical world around us, temporal and material in scope, but also with the metaphysical world around us, what we would call the spirit of this age, the philosophies that dominate the thinking of the day and how it is that we observe and interact with them. We're not going to get into particular specifics. We've done that already uh, in First Timothy, we, in, uh, in Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, men shall be lovers of their own selves. We saw that. We saw the spirit of this age already in, in, in practical terms through those passages. Today we talk more philosophically, more generally. And the study will be one formed primarily through a contrast it's going to speak to the, the danger of loss to the spirit of this age, but it's also going to talk about the joy of restoration, a contrast between two individuals, one who by all accounts had been subverted by the spirit of the age, and another who, it would seem, had found his way from a previous subversion into a place of profitability. And by God's grace, it will give us insight into our own church, our own lives, and our interaction with the spirit of our own age. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the Bible says this. Uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's do that. Beginning in verse 9, the Bible says this. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. Paul writing to Timothy here. Paul calling Timothy to make a concerted effort to come as quickly as possible. We'll see later in verse 21, we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, uh, that this request is hoping that Timothy would arrive prior to winter. And we might say, why so urgent prior to winter? And then we look a little bit farther, we'll talk about today. And Paul will say, the cloak I left with Troas, uh, at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring it with thee. Um, maybe he wants that cloak before winter, right? Um, among other things. So he says, make haste to come, and, and uh, the call will be in verse 21. Get here before winter. So we read in verse 10. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. There's also a spiritual reason why Paul is urgent that Timothy would come quickly unto him. And he spe speaks of it here. Demas had forsaken him. Crescens had departed to Galatia. Titus unto Dalmatia. Now we see this man, Demas. The beginning of Paul's appeal to Timothy to come has to do with the general absence of fellow ministers, but particularly we see Demas, who is not only mentioned here. We see him mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. He's also mentioned in Philemon, verse 24. And in both of those contexts, he's mentioned very positively, very favorably, as a fellow minister of Paul and of Jesus Christ. But now we find in 2 Timothy that Paul, uh, Demas had now left Paul, forsaken him, the word literally meaning to desert him. And Paul says the reason is because Demas is living in a place of loving this present world. Now we find here an interesting translational note 
which is going to factor into a little bit of our time. Actually, today is going to be an interesting day as far as the King James is concerned. Uh, this morning, I'm going to walk through the nature of how the King James translation translates this world that we, or this word that we see here, translated world. We're going to have to look at it in a bit of a nuanced way. Tonight, I'm going to spend my time in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, uh, defending a translational element of the King James, which I believe is very important, that due to translation philosophy has completely fallen out of other translations, uh, much to, uh, I believe, a detriment to the church. But we find here a translational decision which is not ideal in our King James Bible. Every once in a while, we'll run across something which uh, for whatever reason, the King James translators made a decision, while not wrong, usually undergirded by a desire to not impose their interpretation on the text, yet can sometimes muddy the waters of interpretation. Now, as I've said before, when we come to these, uh, I thank the Lord that I can say with confidence that none of them have been in error. We, this is not an errant translation. It was, it's just one that, that can muddy the waters a little bit. Nor is it a translation which is, imposes something incorrect onto the text. The most notable one of these that I've talked about before is how the King James Bible translates the words for the afterlife. There are actually four, five, depending on who you talk to, different words that speak to the afterlife in the Greek. And the King James Bible translates them all hell. And that's unfortunate because they are words that reflect different elements of the afterlife whether that's Gehenna, speaking of the lake of fire, or Tartarus, speaking of the bottomless pit, or Hades, speaking of simply death. There's at least one other one. It's not coming to my mind. But as we think through this, we recognize that the fact that they're all translated hell means we lose some of the nuance of what's being said in the context unless we go back to the Greek and understand the word that's undergirding it. Now, this is not a wrong translation because hell, in the Greek context, it does encapsulate all of the elements of, of the afterlife. But it doesn't help us understand the nuances of what's being said. And the same kind of idea is here. The word translated world is just fine, but it doesn't capture the nuance of exactly what is being said, particularly when it's distinguished with the second word that the King James translators typically translate world. And that second word is the word cosmos. This is the most obvious and natural word, meaning world in the Greek. It speaks of the natural world, or the material world, or the, the people and institutions that populate the world. So it's all about kind of the inherent material inhabitants and institutions and elements of the world. This word is used 152 times in the New Testament. Every single time it's translated world, and it's used in various glosses. Let's look at a few of these together. When, when, you're, when you're going through a study and you see two words that seem to be different but are translated the same way, a helpful thing to do is to go look at the other places where that word is used in the Greek to understand the, the kind of the breadth and the height of how that word is used to gain a feel for it. So as it relates to this word cosmos... It's used in Matthew 4, verse 8. This is the first time we see it in the New Testament. And the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. So the idea, all the kingdoms of this cosmos, right? All the kingdoms of this world, all the kingdoms of the material creation, all the kingdoms of this world. Matthew 5, 14. Jesus said to his disciples, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. 
the disciples of Christ are those that shine a light into the, the world, to the people, to the inhabitants of this world. We actually shine the light into the institutions of this world too, don't we? As those who are disciples of Christ. John 3.16, this word is used. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word world speaks of its inhabitants, right? God so loved the inhabitants of this world. God did not give his, uh, his son to die for the trees, right, or, or the animals. They are not made in the image of God. There is not a redemptive plan for them. They are under the curse because of the dominion of man over the world. Christ came to save men, right? And so we see that gloss for this idea of world. Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of this world. This goes part and parcel with the next verse, Colossians 2.20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? The rudiments of the world, the traditions, right? The ordinances, the elements, the, uh, the uh, being subject to physical things, as if somehow Christians have to be bound to something physical. We talked this morning a little bit in Sunday school about the nature of, of church, right? Church is not bound to a building, right? This is a, this is a rudiment of the world. Now, it doesn't mean we can't use it, but we're not bound to it, right? And this is that idea, that's a part of the world. That's how this, this word world is used. So in Galatians, under, there was a time before Christ where we were in bondage to the elements of the world. We'll see that a little bit more in 1 John in just a minute. 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, Paul says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The physical world, right? You were born, and you brought nothing in. And when you leave, you don't get to take any of it with you. It's staying in this world, right? The physical world, where the physical institutions and physical bodies and material things are. These things stay because they are of this world. That's this word cosmos. And then 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is all this idea, the rudiments of this world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the, pride, uh, the eyes, the pride of life. Now, these are things in us, but they're in us as, they are, as we connect to the world, right? These are things that connect us to the things of this world. These are immaterial emotions, but those emotions are inextricably attached to material things. That's what compels, that's what motivates the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's all about the material. It's all about this world, the institutions of this world, positions in this world, things in this world. So this is the idea here. If we were to sum it up, we would see that the common thread that strings all of these ideas pertaining to the world together are things of substance and essence and philosophies and desires connected to the temporal and material created order. So this is most obvious and natural when we see this. The King James translators use the word world. Makes sense. The word which we find in our context today is much different, though. It's at the bottom there. I own. The word literally translated is age, season, course. It's a word which speaks to a particular subset of time. It's significantly more tied to time than it is to substance. 
It is in this way connected to the world because world, the world, I mean, time is a creation in and of itself, is it not? God is timeless. But we're speaking of the course of events, the spiritual and metaphysical essence of a set time, far more rooted in that idea. So 71 times this word is translated ever, as in like forever or never. It speaks of uh, literally there, when we see it in the text, it's typically seen, it's, it's one English word, forever or never. So 71 times it's ever, 38 times translated world, six times translated never, four times translated evermore, two times translated age, two times translated eternal. Typically you're going to find a phrase for, uh, for ages of ages or unto ages of ages is how it's literally in the Greek. And that would be translated forever or evermore. Or we might see never unto ages, which would be never, is how it would be translated. So we don't have a, a, the, the clearest English translation of the Greek idiom. And again, this happens sometimes. If you ever see God forbid in your Bible, in a King James Bible, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. If you ever look in the Greek for God forbid, the word God or forbid is not in the Greek. It's megnoita, may it never be. It's literally what the, the Greek text says. And the King James translator said, well, do we translate that literally or do we translate the Greek idiom? Just like if we were in our culture today, and you were translating something from English to uh, a language not connected to the Western world. If you were going to go to Asia, or if you were going to go to South America, and you were going to translate the word cool as it relates to that's really cool, would you actually put that's really cool in their language? Or would you try to translate the idiom cool into, that's really neat, that's really great, that's really something I like, in order to help foster understanding, right? So we have these, these translational struggles within any Bible translation. And what we find here is that 38 times it's translated world, which means the vast majority of times it's actually not even translated that. It's, it's translated ever or forever or never or evermore or these sorts of things. And this pairs nicely with our method of interpretation. It sometimes falls under the, the label of dispensationalism, which sees God dividing time into seasons. And that there are seasons of time where God works in a particular way at a particular time unto a particular purpose. And while his purposes are never changing, yet the methods which with, with which he interacts with man alter over time. And so the idea of ages, of seasons, uh, fits nicely with this idea. And that's really the idea, the, the, the deeper essence of this word. Not so much world in the sense of the physical and material, but more like world, like the direction the world is going, the way the world is functioning, the, the, the spirit of, of the world, the, the essence of the world, the, under, the, the, the underbelly of its direction. Let's look at a few examples of how this word is used to get a flavor for it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That would literally be for, for, for ages and ages. Amen. Unto the ages. 
Mark chapter 10, verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, again a promise to the man that leaves father and mother and houses and land. But he shall receive hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Not there focusing on anything physical, right? Focusing upon the age that is to come. The age of eternity. The age of the spiritual. This, that season of history. Not defined by the material and temporal, but real nonetheless, as it relates to the events of God's timeline. John 8, verse 35, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, there's our word, unto the ages, but the son abideth ever to the ages. John 9, 32, Since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. Of particular note is the second instance where we find a blind man whose eyes had been opened. And as he reasons with those who were reviling him for being healed, um, he tells them that such things had not happened since the world began. Now, we might not see this as being true as it relates to all history. A, a great number of miracles were performed, although we do not explicitly see any Old Testament account of a man being healed from blindness. We might presume that these things could have happened. Any number of other tremendous miracles happened through the prophets. But that's not really the point here. More specifically, though, the man was relating himself to the timeline of history, within the timeline of history, within the ages, since the age began. Within this consistent history, have we in our age, have we in our time seen anything of the sort? Have we in, in, in our essence seen anything like this in the essence of this age? And I don't want to belabor the point there are several passages where we see both of these words, however, together. And this is another thing that can help us, right? If both cosmos and Ion are used in the same passage, well, then we might be able to see a little bit of a distinction between them. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Where is the disputer of this age? Where's the disputer? Where's the person who has built his life upon the philosophies and the intellect and the reason of this time? Has not God made wisdom, uh, made foolish the wisdom of all of these material things? The Greek philosophers had spoken for generations. I mean, think of even, even the idea of the logos. In the beginning was the word. That word there is logos. The Greek philosophers had been speaking of the Logos for, for generations before it was written in the book of John. Looking through their dar the darkness of their own hearts in an attempt to understand the course and the nature of the world and the relationship of, of words, the relationship of, of, of words to essence, as it were. In fact, many Christian scholarly thinkers today don't actually begin studying Logos with the Bible. They begin studying Logos with the Greek philosophers. And then they immediately set themselves up for failure, right? Because they're attempting to interpret the Bible through philosophy rather than the philosophy through the Bible. But in that Paul used this word, I own, we might understand Paul to be speaking specifically of the thinking of their day, of the philosophies of their day, of the spirit of that age, as opposed perhaps in context to just all of the workings of the world. And we see that contrast here. 
Then he quickly broadens the scope, asking, Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The thinking of the age is little more than the natural extension of all that has come before. They may claim greater insights, they may express things differently, but regardless of how insightful they may be and how close they might come, it's all rooted in the things of this concrete world. It's rooted in what they can see, it's rooted in what they can touch, it's rooted in what they can understand, and God has made those things foolish because the just shall live by faith, right? The just shall live by faith. The wisdom of this world at the end of the day is fundamentally flawed. It is impossible to understand the deepest essence of the spiritual simply through the material world. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 1, that the carnal man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God because the things of the Spirit of God are spiritual and therefore are spiritually discerned. Those can be understood through faith alone. We also see this mixture in Matthew chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. This is the interpretation of the the, uh, sower and the seeds. Jesus says, the field is the world, the cosmos. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children, excuse me, the, um, yeah, the tares are the, this is the wheat and the tares, my apologies, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, the, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, I own. And the reapers are the angels. Notice Jesus says within the scope of the parable, the seeds are a part of the physical material world. They're they're the children of the kingdom, but they are in the world. The people and institutions of this world are the tares, the children of the wicked one. But then Jesus says the harvest, when the tares and the wheat have grown together, and then at the harvest you pull out the tares first and you leave the wheat, He says that's the end of the world, the end of the age, not of the physical creation directly. At that time, God will not melt the worlds with a fervent heat and remake them just yet. We're speaking of before the millennium, not after at this point. But it is the end of this season, is it not? It is the end of this this season of time, this age, the age of grace, the age of what God is doing prior to the kingdom of our God being established. So that's what he means when he says the end of the world. It's actually the end of the age, the end of that season of time, not the end of all the world, not the end of the physical, material things of the world. Those will persist through the millennial kingdom. Okay, so we have this idea. And I'm sorry we had to go through all of that. It's a little bit of an aside, but it is important. When you see this word world, it's worth you taking a a moment to pause and to to look and to see what what Greek word is undergirding it, just like when when you see the word hell. It's worth finding out what Greek word undergirds it. It's worth it with the word world because it may be slightly different than what you're expecting, and it could fundamentally change the framework of how you're interpreting that passage. So Demas had forsaken him, Paul says, having loved this present age. Not that Demas chose necessarily to follow after the, all the physical material things of this world, but rather he had chosen to place his love upon the spirit of that age, above the direction of the apostles. And in this we would expect not necessarily that Demas had decided to pursue riches, or even the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But rather, more likely, I would say, and this is an, this is an extrapolation. This is, this is me thinking through it. This is not what the Bible says explicitly. All the Bible says is he loved this present age. 
But likely, Demas got into some manner of false teaching, whereby Demas would still very much be devoted to the religious, to the spiritual. It's not necessarily that he was going after all the physical things of this world. He was perhaps still devoted to the spiritual, but not to sound doctrine. He was following after the spirit of the age rather than the spirit of the Lord. And in this we find a tragedy which is all too common in our churches where men begin well, but over the course of time, they allow the thinking of this world, the thinking, the philosophies, the concepts, the spirit of the age, to muddy their understanding of the things of God. They fall short of parsing between what is sound doctrine from the word of God, what is truth from the word of God, and what is the spirit of the age in which they live. And instead of interpreting the Bible through, uh, the, interpreting the, the spirit of the age through the lens of the Bible, they begin to interpret the Bible through the lens of the spirit of this age, the philosophies of this age. Christians and churches are prone to do this, who assimilate to modern humanistic philosophies, who assimilate to theories of unbelieving scholars and philosophers, the great thinkers of this world, be they ancient men or contemporary men. We have any number of modern spirit of the age issues that culture is dealing with right now. Race theory and feminism and patriarchy and social justice and economics and psychology and science so-called. And our churches are oftentimes being swayed by the spirit of the age into dictating the spirit of the age into the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to dictate their perception of the spirit of the age. Others who assimilate the theories of unbelieving scholars, as I mentioned, and so they listen to unbelievers expound upon morality and expound upon their thoughts about maybe even the Bible. And they're allowing unbelievers to, to, to impose upon them thoughts rather than imposing their thoughts on the Bible and then interpreting what the unbeliever is saying through it. And they listen to these theories and they assimilate these theories and then they seek to understand God and his word through the lens of these humanistic ideas and thus it perverts the text of the scripture. You depart from the scripture having loved this present age. And it cannot be overstated how easy it is for us to do this. How often it has happened, even within the scope of church history, even within the scope of good church history, and how much damage it can cause both to the church corporate and to individual lives. The church did this as it related to the history of chattel slavery for generations, didn't we? While the abolitionist movement was a movement that was initiated and championed primarily by pastors and churches, make no mistake, a subset of the church allowed their, devo their devotion to this worst form of slavery, mind you, very much so distinguished from the kind of slavery that the Bible talks about, right, from this idea in the Word of God, which is instructed in scriptures, which talks about in scriptures. It's an economic system, not a philosophic system, carries with it a fundamental recognition of human worth and dignity. It's just a, a system of arranging society, right? That's what the Bible had. It had a system of arranging society within which certain people were indentured. That's very different from chattel slavery. The idea that you strip from a person their human worth and dignity, you treat them as lesser, as an animal, as a possession, to be bought and sold, to be bartered, to be abused or used, to be discarded when you're no longer functional, those are very, very different things, right? But a portion of the church had sold themselves out to this 
evil form of chattel slavery, had we not? And this was because of the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age recognized its value to their society, and they forsook the text and instead imposed their, their, the spirit of the age upon their understanding of the text. And so they started to alter what the Bible said or how they interpreted it to conform to what they needed it to conform to to, to, to match the spirit of the age, and this was sin. And this was wrong. This goes hand in hand with how the church has handled evolution. Because deceived for a time, and uh, the church was deceived for a time into attempting to shoehorn the philosophy of evolution into the Bible because of their devotion to science so-called, invented by unbelievers, praised by humanists everywhere as the point in which God became irrelevant to mankind, and overrode their willingness to believe the text of the Bible at face value, leading to a distinct undermining of the authority of God's word to the entire generations, the fallout of which is still being felt today. Because in that generation and in that context, the church loved its present age. The church got sold out on this idea of modernism and materialism and lost focus on the text. And the same thing could be said throughout the history of the church related to various doctrinal errors, confusions that arose from churches interpreting the Bible through the lens of the age rather than interpreting the age through the lens of the Bible. And take note of the context of these. Because this is not to say that any one compromise meant that the church was lost, right? We're all, we, we make mistakes because we're human. The church is going to make mistakes as a, as a general movement. Our families are going to make mistakes. Husbands, you're going to make mistakes. Fathers, you're going to make mistakes. Mothers, you're going to make mistakes. And just because we make mistakes, this doesn't mean that we're lost to perdition, right? This doesn't mean that we're damned. We just made a mistake. But when it comes time for that mistake to be revealed, when it is recognized, say, in the church, that the spirit of the age has overridden our understanding of the text, we must course correct. And that takes humility. And that's what allows us to continue. And take note. Demas here had been a fellow laborer with Paul for years. But Paul did not say that Demas had apostatized. There are times where Paul is pretty harsh on some people, right? The Lord reward them. We'll actually see one of those next week. Where, where Paul says, this guy, I've given him over to Satan. Paul doesn't say anything like that with Demas. He simply says, Demas has forsaken me. He's forsaken the ministry. He's forsaken this direction. He allowed something to distract him. He's not an apostate. He's not a heretic. He just got distracted, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to lessen this. What I'm saying is Paul is not here being very harsh necessarily on Demas. He's simply saying Demas should be here and he's not. He's supposed to be here to be helping me. Timothy, I need you to come quickly because Creskins went to Galatia, because Titus went to Dalmatia, and Demas is supposed to be here, but he's not. 
because he had other priorities. He allowed the spirit of this age to overcome what was necessary, what, what was right, what the spirit of God needed him to do. And so I need you to come now. So let's guard our hearts. First against subversions, but also against judgmentalism, right? You know, it's so e easy to carry the spirit of the age into our understanding of things. It's so easy to be overcome by the spirit of the age. Let's be careful. And we might even see it in some places we would never expect, which is where we pray that prayer earnestly to the Lord that the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And when we drift, we see it. We humble ourselves. We repent. We confess. We get realigned. And when the church generationally realizes that it has drifted, it's fallen into some error, it's fallen after the spirit of the age, the, over, the spirit of the age has overridden something that the Bible teaches in simplicity. It's our privilege to realign, to change, to alter our understanding to fit the text. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school today. Some of what our church is, in fact, is that. We mentioned chattel slavery, the church being completely cleansed from this doctrine over time. We mentioned evolution, the church abandoning as uh, the, the idea that, that science demands that particular Darwinian interpretation. And we have done some of these things in our church. We talked this morning a little bit in Sunday school about reliance upon parachurch organizations a model which even 20 years ago was preeminent in the church, but which has shown itself to be absolutely incapable of maintaining doctrinal purity. That should not be a surprise to us from the text, but when we were in it, when our parents and grandparents were in it, they didn't see it, right? So we have all of those parachurch organizations, and they're compromising because they have, don't have biblically ordained authority structures to keep them moving forward properly. Now, this doesn't mean that they're evil, although some of them are slouching that way, but it does mean that they stepped out of a measure of God's design, and if the church is going to get right, we're going to have to acknowledge this and realign. What about megachurch movement, which has shown itself good at getting numbers, but terrible at making disciples? And what we'll see is that as the church follows the Lord, there's going to be a course correction to small, organic, local churches capable of discipling its mem members unto Christ, not just into religion or tradition, right? We are a non-age segregated church. We formed this because we believe that the church needs to be heading back to a structure where families are more tightly integrated and where multi-generational discipleship is facilitated. The age-segregated church movement formed out of the spirit of the segregation in schools, which was formed out of a uh, philosophy in the early 1900s and late 1800s and going all the way back even before that as it related to humanistic ideas of how the brain develops, begun by educators whose philosophy was humanism, whose goal was to replace the family with the state, propelled into the church by the cultural revolution of the 60s as an accommodation to the spirit of rebellion found in that age, whereby 
instead of rebuking the spirit of rebellion when children decided that they were going to reject their parents' churches because they were their parents and they were rejecting everything of their parents. The church said, no, you don't have to reject the church because you reject your parents. We'll just create a church inside the church for you. And it'll be a place where the youth can come and you can have your ideas and your, your concepts fleshed out because your parents don't really understand you and you don't understand them. And so the church, rather than calling, unto, calling these children to reconcile the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, the church accommodated a spirit of the age, spirit of rebellion. And it worked on the short term, and it's reaping long-term terrible consequences, as we would expect. And the church is going to have to course correct at some point and humble itself and change. All these are ways in which the church has throughout time taken the spirit of the age and allowed it to inform our understanding of the Bible rather than taking the teachings of the Bible to inform the understanding of the spirit of the age. But there is hope, Christian. And that's what we also see in this text. For as seasons change, as ages change, as times change, so too God's people can be renewed. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We see this even in the text itself today. And it's a hope that I want to leave you with as we come toward the end of our message. We do not see in this text or in the record of Scripture Demas finding any sort of course correction. But I don't think it's an accident that within the same text we get to see a course correction that was over a decade in the making. Here we in, see in verse 10, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Crescent having left for Galatia. Titus going to Dalmatia. That was a part of Macedonia, way up to the north and the west by foot from, from uh, Greece. Then we continue in verses 11 through, through 13. Excuse me. He says, Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for ministry. Antichicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. So Paul mentions that only one man is still with him, and that's Luke. This we would understand to be the Luke who wrote Luke and Acts, the beloved physician. Acts chapter 16, verse 10, is when Luke picked up the journey with Paul, and we know that because we see a definitive pronoun change from they to we. And so we see a definitive pronoun change showing that, that that's when Luke joined Paul's band. And for the majority of Paul, the rest of Paul's life, Luke would stay with Paul would follow him, would minister with him throughout his journeys. And Luke is with Paul here in 2 Timothy toward the end of Paul's days. But then notice the next request that Paul makes unto Timothy in verse 11. This is an important one. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for ministry. This is by no means an insignificant statement, and particularly when we juxtapose it with Demas. The history which informs the significance of this is found in Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem council had just happened. Paul gets up and he defends with Titus and Timothy there. He defends the faith. He defends the, 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 necessity, the, the lack of necessity for Christians to have to be circumcised or to submit themselves to the law. At the end of this... We read in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 40. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, who was Paul's partner on that first journey, 
Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. This is that same Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. So we find here a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over whether or not Mark should join them on the journey, this second journey. Paul was adamantly against this, specifically because Mark had abandoned them last time in Pamphylia, presumably returning home for whatever reason. Mark had forsaken them, <laughs> having loved the present age, perhaps. Paul lost confidence in Mark, and so he refused to journey with him again. Barnabas was insistent on taking Mark. They were related. Barnabas saw something Paul did not, and so they split up. With Barnabas taking Mark and going to Cyprus, and Paul taking a man named Silas, who we'll see throughout the Greek text as Silvanus. Now, the timetable is not definitive for the book of Acts, but we would generally regard Paul's second journey, which he took after splitting from Barnabas, to be around 50 A.D. And we regard Paul's writing of 2 Timothy, the final book, to be somewhere around 67 A.D. So something like 15 years since the time when Paul had refused to travel with Mark because Mark had abandoned the work. But Mark got back up. He traveled with Barnabas. He ministered the gospel. He repented. And here, toward the end of his life, some 15 years later, Paul says to Timothy, when you come, bring Mark, because he's profitable. He's a profitable man for me to ministry. This man will help. This man can be used of the Lord. I trust you see it. You see the restoration, and you see the contrast. Demas had forsaken Paul, having loved this present age, while a former forsaker who had left for reasons that we do not know, but he had returned and he, he had realigned, and now he's profitable. And this is the great hope, Christian, for not just us as individuals or as us as families, but us as the church, that when we get distracted by the spirit of the age and we step away, we get confused. We don't know what more is in Mark's, Mark's mind and in his heart. We don't know why he stepped away. Presumably, though, it's not necessarily that he just decided he hated God, just like Demas. Demas. Demas didn't seem to be that way either. But he got distracted. He, 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 maybe he was fearful. Maybe he was, we don't know. But whatever it was, Mark returned. And he was profitable once again. May God help it to be with us as well. To finish our context, we find Tychicus having gone to Ephesus, where we believe Timothy would have been at the time, perhaps Tychicus even being the man to deliver that letter. And then a final instruction for today, that Timothy would bring the cloak, he left at Troas with Carpus, and then to bring the books, and especially the parchments. We talked about the cloak already, winter's coming. The books we might understand to be copies of the scriptures, probably Old Testament scriptures, which had been made into scrolls and distributed. And then Paul says, especially the parchments. Parchments would have been letters. And these may very well have been the foundation of the New Testament, and Paul wanted those, uh, especially as we see these letters 
of the apostles distributed to the churches, forming that foundation. Now, as we close today, I want to take these things which we have considered academically, and I want to call them home to our, our own lives. Are you living in a place today of humble inspection related to your own thoughts and actions compared to the teachings of the Word of God and the spirit of this age? Are you imposing the thinking of the age upon your understanding of the Bible, or are you imposing the Bible upon the way you understand the spirit of this age? Are you living in a measure of guilt, perhaps, frustrated by past failures, and you need to remember the legacy of Mark? Maybe you had been, maybe even up until recently. Maybe, maybe today is a day of repentance for you, and you recognize that you have been subverted by the spirit of this age, but you say, now that I've repented, what good am I? I've been undermined. And you need to remember that Mark, some 15 years after Paul said, that man is not traveling with us, Paul is now writing to Timothy and saying, bring him with you when you come. This man is profitable unto me for ministry. Do you need to set aside the failures of your past? Get up and move forward for Christ. You can be profitable. Repent, confess, cleanse the heart, get moving, get back up, get, serve the Lord. Be profitable. God forbid that we would allow the spirit of this age to invalidate our effectiveness, either through its deceits or through the guilt and the memories of past failures. Thank God that unlike humanistic philosophies which are being feverishly imposed on society today, the doctrines of Christ and the love of our Lord always leave room for repentance. Repentance. Restoration. They always make a way for a man to come back home. Would to God, even in this, we would embody Christ, the spirit of Christ above the spirit of this age. That we as a church would operate in a manner that is entirely consistent with the leading of the spirit of the Lord and the precepts and principles of God's word and not allow the spirit of the age to impose itself upon us. Would to God that we as families would live in such a way that is led by the Spirit of God through the precepts and principles of God's Word, we would not allow the Spirit of the age to override and confuse what the Word of God has told us. Would to God that we as individuals would not allow the Spirit of this age to override the Word of God, the Spirit of the living God. That we would be to Christ a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we would be vessels of honor fit for the master's use. How are you doing today? Have you searched your heart recently as it relates to the spirit of this age and the way and the manner in which you are living out this life? Do you know that there are elements of the spirit of age that have subverted your thinking and you need to get them right? Have you been walking in, in a measure of repentance but have lived under the guilt and the shame of feeling as though you cannot be used because of previous subversions of the spirit of this age? Allow the word of God to testify to these things today. And let's get up and get busy serving the Lord in the spirit of the Lord, not the spirit of this age. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. And I ask that you would help us to be vessels of honor, fit for the master's use. 
that you would guard us against falling prey to the, the spirit of this age against the spirit of God and not just the spirit of this age as it relates to humanism and all of the evils that it is seeking to impose upon culture right now but perhaps even the spirit of the age as it relates to people far closer to home pragmatists and moralists Father help us to be biblicists Help us to be spiritual, to follow the Spirit of God and the Word of God into truth. Reveal to us those areas where the Spirit of the age may have encroached and overridden the Spirit of the living God in our hearts. Reveal those places where our understanding of the Bible has been uh, brought through the Spirit of the age into understanding rather than uh, allowing the Bible to inform our understanding. And Father, for any today who are living in frustration, guilt, or condemnation over past failures, past, past uh, times of succumbing to the spirit of the age, Father, I pray that you would comfort their hearts through Mark. And that they would repent, get back up, move on, serve you with gladness. Thank you that you are not a God that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like as we and yet without sin. Thank you that you know our failures, you know our weaknesses. Help us to live in that grace, but to live in that grace unto holiness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.